Welcome. Good morning. It's good to be here. My name is Fred Sanders. I've been a member at Grace EV Free since the late 20th century. So, uh, but it's always always an honor to be able to open the Word of God and share with this congregation. So I entitled this sermon, Learn a Lesson from a Dirty Scoundrel, and then it occurred to me that as I'm walking up here, you might be thinking, ah, so this is the dirty scoundrel we're going to learn a lesson from. Well, I, I can't really make any remarks about that. I'll just say that that wasn't the point of the title. The point of the title is this. We're going to explore this parable this morning in Luke 16, the parable of the dishonest manager. And I just want you to remember very clearly that the main character is a bad dude. He's a rascal. Uh, And that's not just my spin on it. That's not just my interpretation. It's what Jesus explicitly says in the text. So let's just check in there real quick. Glance at Luke 16, verse 8. For a second, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So there it is. Um, He's dishonest, unrighteous, unjust, other translations will say. So that part is not an open question. It's really settled. Our job this morning is to learn the lesson that Jesus is teaching us by understanding what is going on with this dishonest manager. His dishonesty, though, is not an open question. So let's get right into it. Luke 16, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was, well, wait a second. Um, I just want to point out that Jesus is talking here to the disciples, right? Since uh, chapter 15, verse 1, if you glance up there, he's been talking to more of a mixed group that includes disciples, um, but it also includes a bunch of tax collectors and sinners who are very interested in him, some of whom are converting to follow him, and then also a bunch of hostile scribes and Pharisees who are just offended by him. But here he's talking to the disciples, it tells us. That is to say, this parable has a lesson for Jesus' followers. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, this instruction is targeted at you. Everybody else can hear him. And um, down in uh, chapter 16, verse 14, it says the Pharisees heard this. They heard the parable we're about to talk about today. And they responded by ridiculing him. So they can hear, but he's not really talking to them. These are hecklers, and he will deal with them next week. Uh, well, he'll deal with them right in, you know, in our preaching series. It's next week. I, I assume he didn't wait seven days to, yeah. Anyway, the parable here has a lesson for those who follow Jesus and learn from him. So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. That is, the manager was mismanaging the master's business and squandering his goods. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. A modern paraphrase is something like, You are about to be fired, and probably more than fired. I mean, your job is done here, and I want to see all the receipts, the entire paper trail, because there is going to be a complete forensic audit of everything you've had your dirty little fingers on. As soon as you transfer all those records and files over to me, security will escort you from the building and take your name badge. Now, this must have happened by email or something, and the text is not clear about that, because the manager had just a little bit of time to think. Like, it wasn't instant. Once the boom was lowered, he had a moment to hatch a scheme and then carry it out. 
Verse three, the manager said to himself, what shall I do? My master's taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Okay, just a quick word here about this transaction. A hundred measures of oil is something like 900 gallons. I think that's what the NIV tells you if you're reading from the NIV. So if you're trying to picture it, it's something like fill up your entire bathtub 25 times with oil. That's the amount, right? Or fill your gas tank 50 or 60 times, depending on the size of your gas tank. That's just kind of a rough estimate of the quantity of liquid we are dealing with the financial equivalent of. Um, 900 gallons is nowhere near enough to fill up a swimming pool, uh, but you could fill like five or six hot tubs. I'm trying to get like culturally appropriate here to the Southern California setting, right? Um, well, the point is just that you can't move this around in your car or keep it in your apartment, right? This is fairly big business. You need shelf space, serious shelf space to store it and a supply chain to move it. It's not just some domestic quantity, in other words. The manager is negotiating the financing of a business transaction, and the people involved are moving shipments of product. So that's the scale, but the proportion here, I think, is the sort of jaw-dropping part, half. Cut it in half. Our guy, the manager, by the authority still vested in him in some way, cuts this debt by 50% gets the paperwork, does a quick refi on the spot, bada bing, bada boom, suddenly, Simeon the oil merchant walks away owing only 450 gallons instead of 900. A banner day for the oil industry. <laughs> Thank you to the manager. Okay, then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, write 80. Now. You can pause here because that's kind of the end of the story already. At least it's the last transaction we're told about. And obviously, we're supposed to kind of fill in the rest of them from our imagination. What I mean is, it's not likely that the manager summoned exactly two debtors. I think Jesus just sketches out the first two and trusts us to extrapolate from there the kind of afternoon it was. In a story like this, the kind of rich man who's got business deals with 900 gallons of oil and a semi-truck load of wheat is the kind of guy who has plenty of other deals going on as well. But there's no need to belabor the point. Each deal is a different volume and a different percentage based on calculations we're not privy to. But what we're supposed to track is obvious, the manager's basic move. We see it here. Intervene to reduce the debt, to earn the gratitude of the debtor, and then wait for the ax to fall. So in that sense, the story's over, and there's nothing else left to narrate about it except the master's reaction. But what a reaction. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He commended him. But I think you know what kind of commendation this had to be. <laughs> right? It was a slow clap, followed by a finger wag. You sly dog. Right? I, I see what you did there. You, you got me. Not, not bad. Not bad. Son of a gun. I extend to you my grudging admiration in spite of my own best interests. 
I must admit, I did not see that one coming. It's kind of a coyote as a trickster story, right? Like you're not sure how he's going to pull off some clever trick, but as soon as he does, the story's over like, yeah, you tricked him. Good job, coyote. Now, the story really does stop here, and then Jesus goes on to comment on it. So we don't know what would have happened next with all these characters we just met in this very concise parable. And we're left with all kinds of detail questions, like did the master really go ahead and fire the manager, or did his grudging admiration extend to, if you're that tricky, I want you on my side? Did he try to take legal action over what just happened? Did the manager go on uh, to get the support from the people whose accounts he had fixed? Did he succeed in inspiring gratitude? We don't know. Don't ask. Sorry I asked. I was just doing that by proxy for you to tell you, like, don't do that. None of that stuff actually matters, interesting as it is, for the point of the story. Because all Jesus was after was that one plot twist. That's what he was here for. How money manager man, under pressure, came up with a clever idea for saving his own skin. So we need to focus on that scoundrel's shrewd move and his boss's response to it. Let's ask why Jesus sets this before us as something we can learn from. Look at Luke 16, 8, where the commentary starts. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, that's the explanation. Now for the explanation of the explanation. I think there are three keys to understanding Jesus' lesson about the dishonest manager. Number one is this temporary economy. Number two is the virtue of shrewdness. And three is the danger of mammon. So this temporary economy, the virtue of shrewdness, and the danger of mammon. The first key to understanding this parable is the way it dramatically portrays what it's like to live in a financial system that is all just about to come to a screeching halt, at least for you. The manager's moment of discovery is when he recognizes that he exists in a temporary economy. I mean, he's apparently been going on for some time as a successful businessman, living his best life now, putting it on the company expense account. When charges are brought against him that he's been wasting his master's possessions, did you notice he doesn't say, no, I haven't. No. He doesn't start pulling together the evidence that will clear him of the charges and exonerate him. He immediately behaves exactly like someone who knows he's been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. And then the story takes us inside his thought life and lets us overhear exactly what he's thinking. What am I going to do? My master's taking this job away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Oh, oh, I know. I know what to do so that when I am removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. Up until now, this manager has been living with blinders on, just keeping his eyes on what he can see. What he can manage, he owes, who owes how much for corn and oil and, and stuff like that. He, he thinks 
He's got a rich, full life and living large, but he's actually been ignoring the bigger picture. He's actually been spending all his days confined within an artificial and limited system. He knows how to work the system. He's definitely and obviously one of the winners in this financial game, but it's all in here. All the exchanges, all the networks, all the projects, and all the plans, it's all in a very constrained and limited space. They're all in here. And guess what? The, the hinge of the story is he's about to be not in here, but on the outside. He's about to get kicked out. This alarm comes resounding through his little managed world. Turn in the account of your management. You can no longer be manager. Or, let me say it louder and in King James English to make it scarier. <laughs> Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. <laughs> if this sounds like judgment day, it's because it's like judgment day. We're all spending our lives doing business inside of a limited and temporary economy. And the day will come when the one true master, God Almighty, will call us into account. Everything we're doing business with belongs not finally to us, but to the master. And we're all just managers of it, or stewards. One day we must give an account of our stewardship. I mean, did you notice um, in Luke 16, verse 9, Jesus said, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. He didn't say if it fails or just in case it happens to fail. It's not a question of if your earthly resources will run out. The sands are slipping through the hourglass, and they will run out. The voice of the master warns us to have a plan for when it fails, because we are doing business in a temporary economy here, and we need to plan for the real one, which is eternity. Imagine the foolishness of thinking that this system is the whole story and that what we do with this money is the comprehensive reality of all value. It's like winning at Monopoly and thinking you're winning for reals. Yeah. Actually, it's exactly like that, so I brought the game board with me. Yeah, right? There we go. All right, this is the old back when Monopoly was owned by Parker Brothers. I've been exploring some uh, Monopoly lore this week. Um, Imagine, so this is kind of a parable about the parable. Imagine being the boss of Monopoly and really just winning like crazy. I mean, sweeping the whole board, getting all the utilities, putting up hotels, uh, piling up those sweet goldenrod $500 bills. You know the ones I'm talking about? Here, I brought them because like, I, I am the Monopoly boss, you know? Anybody ever really just dominate a Monopoly game? I mean, just run the entire board and master the whole system? Anyone, anyone ever do that? Firstborns, I see you. Yeah, you can, you can raise your hand. It's all right. Um, the sheer power of it, you know, like I'm winning big. Don't mess with me. I can buy and sell people like you. I have boardwalk. I have park place, maxed out hotels on every property. I have money to burn. I don't even count it anymore because it takes too long. I am a real estate mogul. I am a land developer who owns the seaboard. In one more round, I will have more money than the bank. And we're going to go into that part of the game where we trade IOUs with the bank because the bank owes me. That's how well it's going for me. But then guess what? The game's over. You gather up the pieces. You put the board back in the box. And that's it. 
the whole thing was a temporary economy. So don't go flashing your fancy goldenrod $500 bills out here in the real world. People are not impressed. Those belong in the box. That little box is the only context in which they have any meaning or value, and it's very temporary and artificial and limited. You're a millionaire in there, but your monopoly money is no good out here. But now imagine this. If only there were some way to spend monopoly money inside the game in such a way that you got actually rich in the actual world. Right? This is a little matrixy, but think about it. What, what if there were some way to make your real estate deals in Monopoly actually make a difference in California? I mean, it's a cool idea, but there's not. I mean, okay, as an aside, the Monopoly brand is currently enjoying a miniature comeback as a kind of lottery ticket thing or something like that, a scratch-off game. So still not quite the real world, but closer, right? Anyway, I'm, I'm talking about the board game, though. I was going to do an illustration with Disney dollars, but the problem is, because, uh, you know, they're like special magic money inside the park, the problem is they've all become collector's value, so now they're more expensive than money. So it kind of messes up the illustration. Um, but have you, ever, so have you ever played Monopoly with somebody who started being suspiciously extra nice to other players, selling them properties that they really wanted, trading with them in ways that were sort of suspiciously, disproportionately advantageous to their opponents, but to their own loss? You know what's going on. They've usually decided the game's a dead loss, and they might as well do somebody a monopoly favor in hopes that they'll get a real-world favor in return. It's tricky. So when the box closes up, mom makes their favorite cookies because they traded her for Marvin Gardens <laughs> so she could beat dad. Right? And all of a sudden, you made a move inside the rules of the game, but obeying higher rules of some kind from a larger, realer world, uh, and converted worthless paper money into cookies. Now, if you're playing against this person for a while, you wonder how anybody could part with Marvin Garden so cheap. And then you realize you've been played. You dirty rat. You were only pretending to play Monopoly. You weren't playing Monopoly at all. You were playing meta-monopoly for real-world results. Slow clap, finger wag, grudging admiration. That's what's happening in Jesus' parable. The dishonest manager finds out there's another world out there that he is about to be ejected into. So he stops playing the manager game and starts playing the I-need-to-make-some-friends-out-there-in-the-outer-world game. He surveys his options, and he doesn't like them. When I get kicked out, I'm either going to be a beggar or have to do hard, physical, ditch-digging work that I am not used to. I need friends who owe me a favor and will support me. What Jesus is commending here is having a plan for what you're going to do and coming to terms with the end of your temporary economy. So the question to us is, what is your plan for coming to terms with the end of your temporary economy? In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Or treasures on earth, sorry. Scratch that, reverse it. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Nothing is safe down here. The only things you can really save are things you can put in God's safekeeping. 
2 Peter 3.10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, he goes on. So learn a lesson from the dishonest manager and make a plan for the next life, since all these things are to be dissolved. Now remember that this is a parable for disciples. And as Jesus tells it to his disciples, he is actively on his way to Jerusalem to put in place the only real plan for how any of us can ultimately stand before God and be justified in the day of reckoning. It will mean him dying on the cross to atone for our sin and rising from the dead to be our everlasting savior. The news that judgment day is coming is not in itself good news, but the news that Jesus offers salvation to those who believe in him is the good news. This parable can't do everything, but Jesus can. This parable presupposes that the person telling it, Jesus, is opening up the way of salvation by grace through faith, and that those disciples who will follow Jesus will do so by trusting his promise of salvation and repenting of their sins. That's why I pointed out that the parable is for disciples. It doesn't tell you how to get saved. It doesn't lay out a plan for how you can actually get from this life to the eternal life of heavenly dwellings. It instructs saved people how to live in this world as a temporary economy that will someday shut down, uh, shut its own system down, and then open out onto the world of eternal life. In fact, Jesus may especially be talking here to those among his followers who are recent converts, publicans and tax collectors and other money people who need his instruction in what followers of Jesus are to do now with their money. And that's why it leads to the second point, the virtue of shrewdness. The virtue of shrewdness. Look back at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, shrewd is a wonderful word. It means wise, but... Shrewdness is a particularly strategic kind of wisdom. It's resourceful, it's crafty, it's cunning or clever. Again, keep the image in mind that Jesus has given us of this dirty scoundrel who instantly makes and carries out a clever and successful plan. Jesus commends that, the shrewdness, not the dishonesty, right? Never the dishonesty. So if you're tempted to lie or cheat or steal or manipulate people, Don't imagine for a second that this parable gives you any cover or that Jesus will approve. Forget about it. No slow clap for you. But the shrewdness, Jesus commends that. He commends shrewdness in his followers and laments that worldly people are more shrewd than God's people. You ever get this feeling? The Lord is my shepherd and we are the sheep of his hand, but sometimes we hear that sheep aren't very smart and we can start to imagine that our shepherd actually prefers dumb sheep. Hey, dim-witted sheep make good followers, right? Nah. (laughs) See, 
Thank you for indulging me. See, here, the, the lesson for disciples is that Jesus, the good shepherd, wants shrewd sheep. Try saying that three times fast. How many shrewd sheep would a good shepherd shear if a good shepherd could shear shrewd sheep? But okay, so um, let's switch up the animal imagery here. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples and tells them, be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. He wants both, snake smarts and dove innocence. I think most of us instinctively grasp why Jesus desires his people to be as harmless or as innocent as doves. But wise as serpents? Shrewd? It just sounds weird to us. Is, is shrewdness a Christian virtue? Yes, it is. We should muster all the mental cleverness and resources um, that we possibly can. We should make smart plans and carry them out effectively as we steward our resources for maximum impact. Take all those verbs that you might kind of associate with bad guys, subtract the badness from it, and keep the strategic incisiveness. It's a mark of a well-developed Christian character for God's people to scheme and plot and maneuver and design and have an agenda to bless their neighbors and do good, right? Just get up in the morning and stay up late at night scheming like, how can I bless people? One commentary I read for this passage summarized it, God's children should be shrewd with possessions by being generous. Do you remember the old bumper sticker that said, commit random acts of kindness? I saw a lot of those up in Berkeley back in the day. They always slightly bugged me. I mean, don't get me wrong, I am pro-kindness, all right? So don't, don't worry about that. But what's so great about the random part of that? Wouldn't it be just as good? Nay, wouldn't it be sustainably better? to carry out a measured program of consistent acts of kindness? An entire systematic scheme of kind acts? Even a a well-ordered hierarchy of acts of kindness in which compassionate concern for people's most urgent and obvious needs is balanced with steady attention to their deepest and most spiritually significant needs. And of course, there's no need to choose. You can sprinkle some random acts in there for seasoning, but surely the shrewd move would be to make a plan and carry it out systematically. Perhaps use a budget. Maybe tie the percentage. Make commitments to financially support strategically placed people who have the training to be maximally effective at administering kindness precisely when and where it's needed most. Pool your resources with other people to make more of a difference than you can by yourself. Consider longer-term planning for larger acts of kindness made possible through responsible investing in consultation with a licensed financial advisor. Jesus values shrewdness, and he wants disciples who are maturing in the shrewd use of resources and money. Now, one of the best sermons ever preached on Luke 16 is John Wesley's sermon from the 1700s entitled, The Use of Money. Wesley said, perhaps all the instructions which are necessary for the use of money may be reduced to three plain rules by the exact observance whereof we may approve ourselves faithful stewards. Here are the three rules. You may have heard them before. Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Now they go together. You're not allowed to pick your favorite two. (laughs) On gain all you can, and Wesley says, listen to me carefully here. Um, Here we may speak like children of the world and sound much like them. When there's an opportunity to advance ourselves and make more money, 
pursue it by using in your business all the understanding which God has given you, that you may make the best of all that is placed in your hands. Now, by all you can, Wesley has some very specific limits and conditions in mind. And where does he get these? From all over the Bible. Gain all you can without sinning. Gain all you can without compromising your health going after it. Gain all you can without hurting your neighbor in body or soul. All you can without neglecting your family. Gain all you can without becoming so engrossed in business that you stop caring for the life of your soul. And so on. It's a strict moral code as we should expect. But within those biblical limits, he really means it. Gain all you can. Go for it. But second, save all you can. Turning from income to outgo, Wesley says Christian shrewdness about money forbids us from wasting or throwing away our resources. Beware of frittering away money on inflating your lifestyle just for its own sake. Spend wisely and don't overspend. Now, of these first two points, gaining and saving, there is so much to say. I'm trying to apply our passage specifically enough to be helpful, but to not get all the way down to the level of dispensing detailed financial advice from up here. It's really impossible to dispense helpful financial advice to a mixed audience of people at all sorts of different places in life. But a big part of wisdom for everyone is knowing when you need to borrow somebody else's wisdom. So if you need to grow in these areas of income and outgo, Don't be ashamed to ask around for advice about the kind of instruction and programs that your brothers and sisters in Christ have found helpful. There is much to consider, especially for our lives together here in this crazy place called Southern California. And this is where the range of financial understanding and savvy would really come in. Um, uh, I may make comments here about not being motivated by greed when you're in a place of just trying to keep body and soul together and put food on the table, and you're thinking, My problem is not greed, my problem is need. Yes, and so you must think and speak differently about managing financial resources than someone who's in another place. Um, But you also shouldn't uh, cut yourself slack. You can be both needy and greedy simultaneously, right? Like a, a lot of wisdom needs to apply at whatever level is appropriate to where you are. So Wesley says, gain all you can, save all you can, but third, most importantly, give all you can. This comes closest, I think, to the plain meaning of our parable and to Jesus' own interpretation of it, which encourages the wise use of money with an eye on eternal results. Randomly, if you must, but systematically, if you can, make it characteristic of your lifestyle to help those who are in need and to support those who are carrying out good work. One reason for this is the life we share as children of God is a shared life in lots of ways, And it's a sign of health if mutual aid is constantly coursing its way through the body of Christ in various ways. Meal trains, cash grants, emergency relief, anonymous gifts, those mysterious little envelopes that show up in your mail that you never quite find out who they were from, those are just part of the life of the church. I won't say who, but there is someone uh, who has been in this congregation who has employed at least three secret agents to deliver money anonymously to people that he knew were in need. I I think some of you secret agents of this uh, generous anonymous person are in the room. And we didn't know about each other until we sort of ran into each other. Like, did he ask you to deliver some money to, wow, that's that's interesting. Um, There are people like that in the body of Christ. So, you know, two, four, six, eight, money needs to circulate, uh, spread it around. Second, um, generous giving, in addition to marking a mature Christian life, uh, it helps the giver by breaking the spell that money can cast on us. 
Money constantly tempts us to think we're not just stewards, but ultimate owners. So giving some away snaps things back into perspective and helps keep money in its proper place. And that last bit about the spell that money wants to cast on us uh, needs a little more attention. It brings us to our third key for understanding Jesus' lesson in this passage, the danger of mammon. I've got an image here of mammon from the King James Bible. What is mammon? Mammon is Jesus' nickname for money. Here's Luke 16, 9 through 13 in King James. I've underlined the three occurrences of mammon. Um, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, in verse 11. Uh, If you haven't been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the truth? And finally, you cannot serve God and mammon. So you see it here three times in our passage. If you're reading a more modern translation, you don't have the word mammon in these three places. You probably have a word like wealth or money. And that's a fine translation. That's what it means. That's what mammon means. But the New Testament is written in Greek. And in these three spots, Luke doesn't give us a normal Greek word for money. Instead, he reports Jesus as using an Aramaic word. Now, sometimes when there's an Aramaic word right in the New Testament in the middle of a bunch of Greek, our translations pass it along to us instead of translating it. Think about amen, hallelujah, maranatha, talitha kumi. These are things that show up in a different language than the English we're reading because they were in a different language in the Greek it, it, that it was written in. Yeah? Um, that's what's going on here, and it's why I call, Jesus's, why I call it Jesus' nickname for money. It means money, but he uses this weird little word mammon. This word only occurs four times in the New Testament, and we got three of them here. The other one's in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a repetition of that line, you cannot serve God and mammon. That's why I thought it was important for us to look at it. Why does Jesus nickname money? Why does he nickname it mammon? Well, notice how negative his statements about it are. The first two times he calls it unrighteous mammon, so it's kind of an insult or a warning. But on the other hand, in both cases, he's talking about using it well. Make friends using the unrighteous mammon. Don't be unfaithful with the unrighteous mammon. So when Jesus describes money, he sometimes puts it down with the nickname mammon, insults it as unrighteous, but then goes on to consider how it can be used as well. So what's up with that? I think what Jesus is teaching here is that money is tricky. It's just tricky. I mean, think about it. You can't turn your back on that stuff for a minute. It will run away or fly away or depreciate or inflate or attract thieves. It's just trouble. If you're not careful about saving all you can, money seems to leak out like you got holes in your pockets and spend itself. Where does that stuff go? And then money sometimes starts to exert a mysterious magnetic power that draws our hearts to it even when we know better. Call me your precious. You know, it captures our attention and it begins to fascinate us. It, it can infiltrate our thought life and our value system. Money's mere existence can lure us into attaching a price tag and a dollar sign to all sorts of things that shouldn't have numbers affixed to them. Why is money so tricky? I'm actually not sure. It might have something to do with how money is a placeholder, right? That money is not itself a good or a service. It's a portable, exchangeable placeholder that you can exchange for goods or services. So instead of being a good thing that you want, a book, a burrito, a beach vacation, money offers to be anything you want, whatever you want, whenever you want it. Hey, baby, I can be your book, burrito, and beach vacation. (laughs) It's the portable power to have whatever you want. 
That's what makes it pretty potent. It's almost as if it's haunted somehow. It's in your possession, but it would prefer to possess you. You want to spend money, but money wants to spend you. On the other hand, you can also definitely use it for good, and you should. So I stand with Wesley here, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. In fact, that kind of offense is the best defense against the deceitfulness of money. But also, I think money should just always continue to make us a tiny bit uneasy. It's a controlled substance. And I think that's what's going on when Jesus calls it mammon and attaches the word unrighteous to it. He's kind of giving it the side eye, even as he's giving instructions on how to use it. Jesus knows that money is tricky, and he wants us to learn to be counter-tricky, shrewd, wise, and clever in how we handle this controlled substance. You can't just straightforwardly use it. You know, would that it were so simple. You need to learn how to use it while it's trying to use you the entire time. So mammon, Jesus calls it. The word may come from the same root as amen. It may have that root idea of trustworthiness. If that's right, then mammon suggests not just treasure, but treasure that you trust. And if mammon has your trust, and once again, we're crossing over into a weird way of talking where we personify money. It's like Mr. Mammon. Money does this. Money does that. Money wants something. Money has plans for your life. In money, I trust. I trust you, O oh money. The old strategy of leaving the word mammon in our English Bibles um, untranslated sort of makes it stand out as if it were personified for us. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. Right? It hits a little harder than translating it to money. In Martin Luther's large catechism, he explains the commandment, you are to have no other gods, by paraphrasing it. That is, you are to regard me as your God, says God. And then Luther poses the question, what does this mean? How is it to be understood? What does to have a God mean? After all, there's only one true God. What does have no other gods before me mean? Here's Luther's answer. A God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. It's the trust and faith of the heart alone that makes both God and an idol. If your faith and trust are right, then your God is the true one. Conversely, where your trust is false and wrong, you do not have the true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends is really your God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends is really your God. So the stakes are high here. In Philippians 3.19, Paul talks about people whose God is their belly. Elsewhere, he says that covetousness is idolatry. Do you get that? Like wanting other people's stuff is a form of idolatry. And I think Luther puts his finger on why that is because it's where you put your trust. It's where you repose your heart. Mammon is the kind of treasure in which you are tempted to trust. So the advice is simple. Don't do it. You know what would be a good idea? To take every piece of money you've got and write on it, don't trust me. As it turns out, some of my money actually says right on there, in God we trust. I'm not totally sure what that's doing there, but it's a pretty good reminder that mammon wants to be your God and is a false God. So don't let him be the one in which you trust. Outsmart him. Be shrewd. When you work for money or with money, 
where is your trust? How do you know? How can you prove it if called to give an account of what you're trusting in? Another question is, are you gaining all you can? Are you saving all you can? Are you giving all you can? I think that these are the questions that Jesus puts before us in the lesson that he's teaching from this scoundrel, the dishonest manager. Will you pray with me? God, we want to serve you and not mammon. Lord, give us your gifts of strength, steadiness, and shrewdness in our use of money. Lord Jesus, the scoundrel in your parable turned his attention from a temporary economy to a bigger, realer world and shattered the hold that money had on him. Give us power to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.